This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. If you love brewing as much as we do and are inspired by the work of leading commercial brewers like Mitch Steele of New Realm, Tommy Arthur of Lost Abbey, Matt Brindleson of Firestone Walker, Jeff Stuffings and Avery Swanson of Jester King, Jason Perkins of Allagash, and more, then put one of our 2018 Brewers Retreat events on your calendar. These luxury brewing events at gorgeous resort locations around the country pair great brewers, great food, and intimate camaraderie for a truly unique and unforgettable experience. Learn more at brewersretreat.com. And if you're interested in reaching the thousands of listeners who tune into every episode of the Craft Beer and Brewing podcast, we'd love to welcome you as a sponsor. For more information, drop an email to info at beerandbrewing.com and our media sales team will craft a plan that works for you. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, uh, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. Uh, my guest today is Nick Nunn, the founder of True Brewing here in Denver, Colorado. We're sitting in the front of their tap room before they open here on a Wednesday afternoon. Uh, the brewery, if, uh, brew house tap room here, if you haven't seen it, is a, a temple to all things metal. Uh, dark and brooding uh, uh, black and white photos lining the walls. Uh, skulls behind the bars and in uh, a bit of an intimidating space but I'll tell you what I've been here and watched uh, you know your your average office workers on a happy hour uh, in suits and ties sidled up to the bar and enjoying a nice pint because the beer that make that true makes here uh, really tends to the sessionable and drinkable side and in an interesting juxtaposition of, of visuals and beer um, True has, uh, was recently named one of our uh, editor's picks beers of the year for their brain transplant uh, collaboration with Cerebral Brewing, a nice mixed fermentation beer. Uh, in addition to sessional beers, Nick and company brew uh, in their Acid Temple facility a whole range of uh, wild and sour beers and have just embarked on a spontaneous program. We're really excited to welcome Nick Nunns to the podcast. To yeah. Welcome, Nick. Thanks, Jamie. So what's happening in the, in your brewing world these days? Oh, I, uh, two weeks ago, you dropped off a bottle of Wavering Radiant, your first year spontaneous ale. Yeah. So which, you're jumping into the spontaneous fermentation game now. Well, we've been doing them. Um, I mean, obviously, there are things that take a little while, right? So we got our, got our cool ship, if you want to call it that. It's really just a big open fermenter. Got it last year, um, early on in the winter. And, uh, you know, had originally, we, we bought it from Called Arms here in town and originally they had intended to use it as an open fermenter and we got it from them because they needed the space in their tap room they couldn't actually they needed to actually blow out their open fermentation room to make more seating space in their tap room so they asked us if we could hold on to it and then we were like yeah sure can we use it and they were like go ahead that's fine with us and then i looked at it and was like hey zach that thing kind of looks like a cool ship doesn't it and literally a week later he had brewed his first spontaneous beer uh, using that thing as a cool ship, and then we just decided to buy it outright from the called arms guys. So, did you uh, turbid mash it and everything? He did the whole process. So we're wow. the cool thing about the way we're approaching the spontaneous program, or I, sh- I should say Zach is, he's really heading the whole thing up. Is we're not hedging our bets on one side of the uh, political or religious <laughs> fence or the other. Uh, we're doing a lot of really interesting traditional methodology. You know, the the typical turbid mashes, all that sort of stuff. But at the same time, we're also trying out some new things and seeing what we can do as American brewers to bring that American innovation to the spontaneous beer domain, as it were. So um, the Wavering Radiant was a non-traditional beer um, using totally non-traditional techniques. Um, I don't recall if it used a turbid mash. I don't believe it did. I think what we Mm -hmm. used for that one was uh, some custom-made malts um, instead. Uh, we did use age tops in that, which I think really uh, gives it that l- sort of lambic flavor profile, mm-hmm. um, or lambic esque <laughs> flavor profile. Lambic style. Yeah, exactly. Lambic inspired. Inspi- it's definitely lambic inspired. Everything yeah. we're doing as far as spontaneous <clears throat> will be lambic inspired, but uh, whether or not we start putting stamps on our bottles or not is kind of undecided. Zach actually penned a really nice essay that he put up on our blog about his feelings personally about. You know the whole method traditionnel and what that means for us as 
um, kind of uh, a willful dissonant voice to the mainstream and undercurrent of what's going on out there. So, you know, calling it a mainstream or an undercurrent uh, makes it sound so much bigger than yeah, it right. actually is because, uh, you know, even among the those that are proponents of method traditional and, and focusing on this, uh, you know, service mark that uh, implies a, a particular historical inspired methodology uh, kind of overshadows the fact that, I mean, this is just the smallest fraction of a tiny part of the smallest edge of craft beer. Right now. Right now. You know, if you look at the number of breweries that are installing cool ships or have installed cool ships within the past year, it's huge. In places where you would never think someone could actually, you know, do it correctly based on the climate of their region. Right. Um, But I think it's good that, I think it's a good thing that Jeff and company are getting ahead of it and trying to create this discussion and just have the dialogue basically because moving forward there's going to be so many more people doing spontaneous beer that you know we need to have that groundwork laid down so i i have the utmost respect for you know jeff at jester king and and just everything he's done to try to like get that base work done and get the ground you know get the uh get the groundwork done ahead of time well, and I think that, uh, you know, what he, what he did there was uh, came from an honest place and a sympathetic place, especially with, uh, you know, for the Belgian Lambic makers, because at the same time this is taking off, there are quite a few people uh, brewing these beers or brewing beers and calling them these things, calling them Lambic uh, and calling them Goose, uh, who are not anywhere close yeah. to... Uh, uh, the historical barely approximating it in some right, cases right right yeah. they're pitching cultures and you know and, and there is something to be said i think for if you're going to call a beer that for doing it that way i think i think sour beer i mean so we were lucky enough to host the inaugural meeting of the sour and wild ale guild that is being tried you know that folks are trying to assemble right now that stems from a you know panel at cbc all about just talking about sour beer, right? Like right. sour beer is one of these things where it's so underrepresented, uh, upper, underrepresented as far as the lexicon that surrounds it. There's not enough words, there's not enough terminology surrounding sour beer as a whole. So for Jeff to at least be starting a discussion on that end while swag is also trying to continue to you know, generate that lexicon and try to come up with the terminology that's appropriate that differentiates these different processes that we all use um i think it's it's hugely important you know no i I absolutely agree and i think the the key there is that these are uh, the way that we refer to these things is the way that breweries sell beer that uh, we can talk about styles and we can talk about appellations and we can talk about names like Lambic and Goose. But at the end of the day, these, you know, we use these kind of reductive terms that are always imperfect in their meaning and uh, tend to have some shift in that meaning over time, but we use them you know, to sell beer. Well, and, that's, and you know, there's an expectation, you know, because you call it that, you are calling it that in order to sell beer to somebody who wants that kind of thing. And there should be some integrity at a broader sense, you know, within the industry as to what that means and that if people use those terms, that it really means what, you know, what they're saying. Yeah, I think that, I think you hit the, the nail on the head. It's really about selling it, right? So calling something a sour inherently means more dollar signs? No, that's definitely not the case, right? Like we've moved from kettle sours to kettle soured barrel-aged beers to mixed culture barrel-aged beers, mixed culture stainless beers. We've done arguably, and now with the spontaneous program, you could say we've done all of the broadest categories of sour beer, you know, in, in big, broad quotes. Um, and not all of them should cost the same amount of money. You know, we sure, never charged, sure. we never upcharged our gozas just because they were sour. You know, we never, uh, never tried to get too gougy with kettle sour barrel aged beers because they were time intensive, but they weren't necessarily as time intensive as some of the mixed culture program beers that we've done now. And even with our spontaneous beer, we're not trying to get gougy with that just because of methodology, because at the end of the day, it's been parked in our warehouse just about as long as some other projects that we've worked on that, you, you know, the cost of goods on was, you know, lo- about the same, if not lower. So yeah. you didn't have to pay for yeast. I yeah. mean, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big one for us, you know, <laughs> especially being here in our tap room where we don't brew often enough here with our clean side of stuff to actually like harvest and repitch yeast fairly well. You right. know? So 
Yeah, it, it was a pretty significant cost savings for us. But yeah, we're not going to, just because something is Lambic inspired doesn't mean it should garner a higher price point. You know, with the with this issue of over method traditional, I, I thought one of the more interesting pieces that happened was that the disagreements were happening between folks who, really at the root of it, are good friends. You know that uh, that some of the disagreements between you know Jeff and and Trevor and you. I mean, these you, you get, you've done your own collaborations yeah, with Jester you know, King. This is this is two uh, brewers walking to a bar. Of course, you know it's like right. it it might as well be a pope and a rabbi or something like that. It's it's the same idea where it's like these people all are peaceful, wonderful people that just want to have an engaging discussion about these things. Right. I, they, you know, I know that Trevor and Jeff are not like, you know, blood, you know, <laughs> out for each other's blood or anything no, like that. No. I know both of them. They're great people. Yeah. You know, and it's like, we're just having these very intense discussions about differing views on things. And I think that because it's the internet or it's based in the internet, it becomes combative, right? That's just how everybody thinks of yeah. things. Yeah, the era of social media has yeah. meant that this conversation happens out in the wild where everyone can watch it happen and also may not understand the context right. that it's happening yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. So it's not like people don't consider things to be discussions anymore. Everything's just an argument all the time. Whereas, no, that's not, how, that's not what's happening here. This is a, you know, a debate of sorts. It is a discussion of like two opposing worldviews. It doesn't mean that these guys hate each other. It doesn't mean that anybody's, you know, maybe a couple of phrases could have been uh, remade in either statements to lessen the, uh, the, the potential for it being construed as an <laughs> willful argument. But um, yeah, at the end of the day, they're just trying to have a discussion. And unfortunately, it's having it happening in a public forum where, you know, every troll under the sun can weigh in with their viewpoint as well. Sure, so. sure. But ultimately, they'll hug it out. Yep, and absolutely. Move forward and have a beer together. Yep, totally. That'll be that. Totally. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, we're drinking a Pilsner brewed here. And uh, uh, if you look at your tap list, it's split uh, half and half with your, you know, your wild and spontaneous and mixed culture beers on one side. And then, you know, pretty much an, an entire lineup of, uh, of very sessionable beers yeah. on the other. Uh, what was your intention with that kind of mix as you launched this brewery? Uh, obviously, as I said in the intro, a lot of extreme visuals going on uh, in this focus and your, on your love of metal uh, would seem to be somewhat at odds at how, um, how focused your beer is on sessionable and drinkable beers. I mean, sessionability was always... That has always been a goal from the outset. Um, I am, I am a, uh, to, I guess to be perfectly blunt, I'm the child of an alcoholic. Mm. As such, I don't really like being drunk. I, I, I am not a huge fan of being inebriated. Um, as such, I like, but I still like to drink a lot of beer, right? So as such, we, we decided to start making sessionable beer just because I want to drink a lot, but I don't necessarily want to get shit-faced. So that was always a really big goal for us is being able to have some crushable beer that you can actually sit there and session on on top of the alcoholic thing i'm also from british lineage so of course i love session beer just by blood sure. you know um so yeah it's kind of a combination of those two things and then yeah i think uh, to put it in a broader stroke as well there is the whole idea of the cognitive dissonance that we supply here where you th you think a heavy metal brewery is going to make you know, big burly imperial stouts and triple IPAs and stuff like that. But we throw you a curveball and do the complete opposite and make these delicate, balanced, nuanced saisons and pilsners and IPAs that aren't necessarily like over the top. Even our imperial stout that we just released this past weekend is, you know, pe people think it's not sickly sweet enough. It's not thick and robust <laughs> enough. And it's like, no, it's just, that's called being a, it's a drinkable beer. You know, it's 10% alcohol, but it's drinkable. You know, that's the whole goal of that beer. So, you know, you guys may think we fucked up, but in reality, we kind of decided to make a beer that was a little bit more drinkable than some other Imperial Stouts out there. So, Well, there's that constant challenge as a brewer to, to balance uh, what the market wants versus what your personality and identity is as a brewery. Um, imagine you're coming up against that as you move into pastry stout world. Yeah, yeah brewing with intention is really difficult when everybody's anticipation is so ubiquitous or there's a ubiquity to the anticipated style right everybody thinks that an imperial stout this day should be a, a super sickly sweet doughy imperial stout you know super flabby um 
you know, you can only really have three ounces of it before you're just like, I don't want to drink any more of this. Bottle share beer. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's it's a tough balance to try to, you know, be brewers who have specific goals in mind about how our beer should be uh, made and then to balance that against what the consumer expectation is going to be, for sure. That's an interesting challenge. You know, do how do your drinkers respond to that? You know, I mean, I imagine the folks, there are, there are probably several different kinds of, of, of people that come out for that kind of beer. One, you know, the, the kind that's solely chasing the hype and sees you've got some new thing with whatever and crowlers, and now they can come and stand in line and try to trade for it. And, uh, you know, and then there are your regulars who understand what you're trying to do with, yeah. uh, you know, with your flavors and might appreciate that more understated approach. We're, we're really fortunate to have a reach that goes into all of those different domains. So we have these regulars that are here, you know, two or three times a week where we should have like a plaque in the bar, you know, or a bar stool with their name on it or something like that. And guys who will just like, you know, come here and just crush beers because it's just our consumer base is so all over the map. It's insane. We'll get regulars who are regulars because of the beer. We get regulars who are regulars because of the metal. Either one of them may get into the other side of the equation depending on which side they were on to begin with. Um, we get the ISOers who only come in here for releases. The ISOers. ISOers, yeah. Okay. And then we get the, uh, you know, the hunters who are um, also regulars. You know? So we get people who line up, and maybe they've never even had an Imperial Stout, but they line up for this Imperial Stout because they know it's going to be limited, and there's just, just such super fans that they want to participate in that and they want to get yeah. their hands on it but it's not because it's something they're going to trade it's because they actually are diehard fans of what we're doing and those people are like all of them are great because they are all supporting us as a business the ones who are into it whole hog into everything about us who are here all the time and also line up for all these releases and stuff those are the ones that are like fuck yeah you guys are <laughs> you guys are who we're trying to like reach out to you know yeah yeah so. what do you do to take care of them our bar staff is pretty good about taking care of the regulars, I yeah. think. Um, I, I kind of turn a blind eye to some of the discounting they might do or hooking them <laughs> up with pints here or there because sure, I know at sure. the end of the day that goodwill goes a long way to re, you know, uh, ensuring that those people are, are the diehard regulars that they are. So, so speaking of the taproom, how, how big of, of a percentage of your business is your direct sales out of your taproom? Our own premise is probably... probably about 75% of our whole business. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, we're wholesaling into a large number of states right now, you know, with sure. a lot of these mixed culture beers. But, you know, we we crush it here at the Tap Room, which is so awesome. And, you know, I can't envision this business doing as well as it does without having, you know, our own Tap Room to, you know, create this environment and and sort of like selectively decide how we're going to present ourselves to people you know it is a uh, unique statement for the for the the beer brand and the company as a it's, whole there's no corrugated metal there's no beetle kill <laughs> um yeah we you know i like to be again it's cognitive dissonance right you right. think you're gonna come into a tap room and it's it's this place doesn't look like every other tap room and i don't i never wanted to be just another tap room in town i wanted to be the one that people are either like, oh, fuck, yeah, this place is weird and cool and I love it, or they're like, it's scary, I'm going to go now, which it's really not that scary to most people, but we get a handful of the ones who, you know, take two steps in and peel out pretty quick. You know, I was in here a couple like couple years ago and, and just saw, like, it was, you know, lunchtime or maybe it was an early afternoon. You just opened. There were, you know, two women in professional attire, um, well made up, uh, looked perfectly normal. Yep. Sitting at the bar, nice loud metal soundtrack. They were enjoying the beer. Were just uh, unperturbed. You know. We don't. Every, everybody mm. like will make like friends of mine who are professionals who have desk jobs will joke to me about how like they'll come in in their work clothes and feel super out of place. None of my bar staff are looking at what people are wearing. You know, they don't care. They really, we as don't As long as they're care. metal on the inside. As long as they want to order a couple of beers and like keep to themselves yeah. or like yeah. just be mellow. You know, like that's all we're looking for is like we're, we're here doing our thing. Yeah. 
And if people want to come in here and in, uh, appreciate what we're trying to, to do here, they are welcome to come and do that regardless of what they're wearing, you know, what their political views are, what they do for a desk job, what their avenue of life is. Like, we don't care. We really yeah. just don't care about that stuff. But from a business owner perspective, you know, putting money into a business, launching this, getting it off the ground, doing it with a look and a brand um, that some may find polarizing, um, that's a risk. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But we're in a, you know, metro area of three and a half million people or whatever it is, you know, and it's like I knew that we would have enough people around here who were into it that it wouldn't be a big deal. You know, if the people from, you know, uh, if the suburbanites to, you know, generally classify it, who may not agree with how we present ourselves, don't like what we're doing, they don't have to come here. That's fine. There are plenty of other breweries that they can go to where they can get the experience they're looking for. We chose to make ourselves a different experience and present a different experience. And as such, we have latched onto a totally different subset of people who want to come in here. And those people are diehard fans as a result of that. It's an interesting concept. And I think it's one that, you know, as we watch business and capitalism and everything develop today, um, you know, the old adage of, you know, being something for everybody uh, and that kind of brewery approach and making sure you have a brown ale and, you know, for that kind of drinker, you have a stout for that drinker and an IPA for that drinker. If uh, you have 60 or 70 breweries in a city and they're all doing something for everybody, how the fuck do you stand out? How do you become the brewery that people actually want to go to, right? If you, if everybody here, every 70 fucking breweries here in Denver do the exact same thing, how do you get any fans? You know, how do you get people latched onto what you're doing? You're not, pol- you know, you're not, I don't want to use the word necessarily polarizing, but like if you're not different enough, you're just the same as everybody else. And there's no reason anybody shouldn't just jump around and not be loyal to you as a business at all. I think that's a good point. I'd rather have uh, enough people love me than everybody just kind of like me. Yeah. You know? Exactly. That, uh, you know, again, in a market with 70 breweries, um, having a lukewarm reception where they don't hate you, but, you know, know, they just have an average opinion of you. It doesn't tend to drive people to actually go out and drink the beer. But having... Uh, having the the balls to go all in on something and and make it uh, special for a smaller number of people who fucking love it, um, you know that again it's a riskier proposition, but it's. Uh, I think it's not nearly as risky as just being the ubiquitous you know sameish brewery. Mm-hmm. We've already had like a bunch of them shut down yeah. or you know sell off to somebody else who's just going to set up another brewery that seems sameish to me, and it's just like. How, what are we doing to better the whole industry if we're doing that? You know, if everybody's just doing the same thing, then there's no, like, I don't know. You need counterculture to push things forward, and that's what we present here is the counterculture, you know? So it's the, it's the counterculture to what beer... Beer was supposed to be the counterculture, but everybody's using the same terminology, the same verbiage, the same lexicon. So we're the counterculture to the counterculture, I guess, you know? In a I, weird way. I would drink to that, but my glass is empty, Nick. I think we <laughs> yeah, might need a refill. All right, we're back with new beers in hand. We've got uh, glasses of Life's Trade, your mixed uh, fermentation light farmhouse ale, mm-hmm. 4.7%, lightly fruity, nice uh, restrained acidity. Um, in a day when, when most folks that say sour saison really beat you over the head with sour, uh, let's talk about how subtle this one is. And, I think... Uh, that's, that's one of our biggest goals is, you know, we don't like bracing acidity. And I think that you're seeing uh, something of a paradigm shift in the whole sour industry as, you know, as a whole, where it seems like a lot of people are trying to get away from that, which is great. I really love the fact that, like, everybody's kind of trying to steer away from the, like, what's your most sour and over towards, like, what do you have that has a little bit more, you know, balance or nuance to it and is a little bit more controlled in terms of the acidity instead of just letting that lacto just like go totally rampant you, well, you talk to those uh, lambic makers they don't make sour beer no definitely not <laughs> exactly right so it's like <sighs> classic american style we went you know we we went way over the top with sourness and now i think as a whole as far as the brewers go anyway you're definitely seeing a lot of them try to pull that back and make some more restrained beers which, what are, you know, we won't, don't need to get too technical on that, but what are some of the ways that you do that? 
Zach uh, talks to our yeast a lot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we all think he's crazy. It's yeah. He kind of is in a really great way. Um, we use a lot of different things. We'll, you know, he'll, he'll be able to sense, based on where a batch is going as the fermentation progresses, what's happening with that maybe particular... Um, that particular instance of the mixed culture. So we have a house culture that we use for a lot of our fermentations. Um, it's a blend of a, a bunch of different stuff. And Zach spent like two years pulling all these different microbes together and like selectively breeding this by, you know, picking barrels that he liked and adding that into the culture and just, you know, continuing to solera it up from there. Um, but, you know, as, as a result of spending so much time building it up, he knows what the fermentation like curve looks like. So he can take a batch that maybe went overly sour and know that on the next one, you might have to up the hopping rate a little bit to like, you know, beat that lacto back down into submission a little bit and just, you know, kind of tailor the recipes towards making sure that the culture is happy and doing what we want it to do. Yeah. It's really, it's a big hopping rate thing for sure. And then knowing that, you know, you know, maybe when one particular tank has some of the culture that's gone way out of hand, knowing that like, okay, it's not harvest from that one. We got a bunch of other ones over here that are doing just fine. We can harvest from those ones instead. Do you find something to do with that beer or, uh, you know, what's the general outcome of that? Sometimes. When it, when it, when it gets too acidic. Sure. Yeah. We'll, we'll do a lot of blending. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll take particular beers that are less acidic and blend them, you know, in a thing like a life's trade, you know, we might have, you know, four or five consecutive batches going all at once. If one gets overly sour, we know we can use a little bit of that one to either punch up one that's not sour enough, or we can use one that's not sour enough to punch down, you know, just blend them to order and get that acidity that we actually really want. Right. It's one of the nicest things about doing mixed culture beer is that it's always usable as long as your blending chops are up. And Zach's right. blending chops right. are really, really good. Now, I mean, there's, there's points if you're getting into ethyl acetate or other flavors that are really just unpleasant. That, you know, we'll, uh, just, we'll just get rid of it. It just goes. But, yeah. uh, but no, you're, you know, that acid beer is uh, you know, certainly something that uh, doesn't have to go to waste, even if it's not exactly what you'd want to release as its own beer. Yeah, exactly. So, like, yeah, we will, you know, as long as it's not going too acetic or, you know, getting too much ethyl acetate or any of the, you know, flavors that we don't want in the beer, as long as it doesn't get totally out of whack, we can always use it for something else, which is great. So we do dump a lot of beer, but we also, despite maybe brewing a recipe for one intended purpose, will, you know, be able to steer it back into being usable for something else. Sure, sure. Um, Let's rewind a little bit to a conversation we're having. You know, you mentioned that uh, Taproom is, you know, three quarters of of your company revenue. Um, you know, but one of the things you did over the last year was actually launch a distribution arm to go along with the brewery. That was uh, actually two years ago. Two years ago. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Yeah, JBS. Seems like just yesterday. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Time flies when you're drinking too much beer. <laughs> so, you know, for a, for a small brewery with a bunch of metalheads who, you know, has a thing for sour beer and, uh, you know, is mostly a taproom business, that seems like a, a crazy move to bite off getting into a rather competitive thinner margin uh logistics based business like distribution um, mm-hmm. what was the what's the impetus there and uh you know why would a, a small craft brewer want to get into that game the real the real reason we're doing distro in the first place was thanks to burial i mean they're they're really the impetus behind the whole thing you know we did collaborations with them burial brewing out of Asheville, Asheville North yeah Carolina. exactly so we uh, did some collaborations with them and then wanted to put their beer on tap and I wanted to figure out how I could make that happen and found out that as long as I get my importer's license and act as their wholesaler, we can put their beer on tap here. And I was like, okay, so we'll do that. And we told Burial, sell us some X. You guys are going to come up for GABF. You're probably going to want to do some events. Send us a whole pallet of something and we can just sell it around town for you. And we did it and it worked great. And we did the same thing for the commons actually. Um, you know, because we wanted to get some of their beer out here as well. So that was kind of like the proof of concept was we got the license, got it all ratcheted down, got everything set up, and then, you know, got the beer on trucks out here and shotgunned it across Denver and it disappeared in a couple of days. And then from that, started talking to other breweries as we've traveled across the country about whether or not they're coming out for GABF it's, and, and asked if they would, you know, maybe want to 
do some collaborative events with us while they're out here. And a lot of them were pretty pumped at that opportunity, you know, to work with a brewer instead of working with some, fa- you know, faceless distributor is much less of an emotional hurdle for a lot of people, a lot of brewers. So, you know, there's, there's a inherent level of trust that we all have in one another and they're happy with that. And we can, we can provide to them the service that they need to get their beer out here. It seems like the existence of the Great American Beer Festival itself has uh, indelibly impacted even the, the distribution business in the state of Colorado. And that, uh, you know, Crooked Stave on the same side is also, they also have their distribution arm, uh, probably a little bit, little bit larger than your, Just a little than, bit, than yeah. your distribution arm. <laughs> we actually, you know, we, we talk to people that are, you know, sometimes fairly big who are like, can you do our distro for us? And we're like, no, like you're talking about sending like a truckload, like you should go talk to CSA or elite or somebody else here. Who's like really big. We'll take a couple of skids off of a brewery here or there, but you know, talking about like, you know, 10 to 20 skids is a different story. So it's just, we know where our sweet spot is. We know where we want to be and we're never disappointed to throw business at some of the other great wholesalers that are here in Colorado. So, yeah, you know, but at at the very core of it, that whole idea of distribution that way of this kind of short burst distribution around special events or, or, you know, getting a truck every now and then, and then selling it out, you know, through, uh, you know, whatever reps to directly to, to retailers. Like this is a dramatic change for yeah. the beer industry. Like this is not the way that the beer industry is ever used to doing it. This is, these are not, you know, core skews and rotating seasonals. This is not, you know, this specific space on the shelf. I mean, this is, I don't know, maybe this month we need this much space and next month we don't need that much space. I mean, this, that's, that's gotta be madness for a lot of retailers out there. I think it can be, um, you know, we certainly see one of the things we run into here in Colorado is that we, I, I find that the Colorado beer market is fairly insular and that can be a good and a bad thing. I'm not, I don't, I don't ascribe it to either side necessarily, right? There are pros and cons just like anything else. One of the pros is that we have a really great loyal market where people buy a shit ton of Colorado beer. If you're here, you're buying Colorado beer, you're buying Denver beer, you're buying beer that's local to you. So when we bring in something from Tampa or Virginia or somewhere else across the country, you know, Queens, people here may or may not even know about this brewery. You know, we have had their beer traveling around to other parts of the world and like trying some of these like shining stars of the industry right now that are like blowing it up on the East Coast and you bring them out here and people are just like, who? I've I've never heard of any of these breweries. So there's definitely an uphill battle for us as far as like educating the consumers here in Colorado about like some of the amazing shit that's happening outside of Colorado. But again, like on the, on the other side of that coin, you know, people here in Colorado are super stoked about Colorado beer. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's a weird position for us to be in for sure. So from your view, uh, you know, we, we've, talked about the the viewpoint of folks within our square state of Colorado and then the viewpoint outside. Um, How do those things differ? It's, it's hard to say. It seems to me like I'm, I'm baffled that you're still seeing breweries in Colorado who are making fun of hazy IPA. I, I, I'm blown away by that. You know, it's like, this is a legitimate style literally everywhere else I go where nobody's like, you know, railing on it or putting up social media posts that are like, just kidding. We're not making, you know, hazy IPA. It's clear as hell. It's almost like the brewing industry here. here is so, so longstanding that we have these like religious zealots about how breweries should act and how the brewing industry should be. Whereas when you go anywhere else in the country where it may not have been quite as longstanding, um, longstanding, uh, an industry, you see a little bit more, uh, you see more flexibility outside Colorado than you do inside Colorado. I think, you know, I I think that's an interesting one. And I, I know the incident uh, on social media, the one that I happened. love those guys too, so I know, <laughs> I know. we can pick it out we, if we you know who do. we're talking about. I we love them. Um, and I thought it was funny. Uh, it certainly gets you a chuckle, but at the same time, it's like, guys, like, you know that like this shit is blowing up. There are like, look at other half. They're printing fucking money out of an ATM. 
selling this shit and you're sitting here struggling to like sell your, you know, clear stuff. It's like, man, pay attention. Just pay attention to what's happening in this industry and be flexible enough to like know that, you know, despite you doing this for 20 years, guess what? It's always going to fucking change in some way or another. You know, and I think I think the level of the criticism, you know, coating yourself in flour and implying somebody is not using honest brewing methods to achieve something um, kind of, you know, that 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 I think is the the unfortunate part of that critique. It's one thing to have a little bit of fun, but but that subtext that, uh, you know, that you're a disingenuous brewer. Um, that's not something that any any fellow brewer is going to accept, especially you know those in this state who are brewing hazy IPAs and, and out of this state who um, are going to great scientific lengths to figure out how to do it well, yep. to make sure the beers have no yeast in them because if there is yeast in them, then it's going to you know that haze is going to precipitate out, and that's not what they want. Right. Um, they're you know they're centrifuging beers, they're looking for that kind of haze stability, and they're using all the tools the brewers have always used absolutely in hazy beers like Hefeweizen to achieve that kind of stability. So, Here's the anecdote. I was in Boston for uh, a festival out there, and uh, me, Zach, my head brewer, and Kat, my sales manager, were all sitting at a bar, and we had three beers in front of us. My beer was fresh from Civil Society, who have since become really great friends of ours. Um, Zach was drinking the same thing as me, and Kat's beer looked identical, but was presented in a different glass. So I asked her what she had, and she said, oh, I ordered a Hef. And when I saw that the level of turbidity was the same in all three of those beers, I was like, oh, yeah, why are we even having a discussion about this? Why is it okay for that beer to have that level of haze, but this one not? Like, you guys are, this is ridiculous. This is not even a discussion we should be having, so. Sure, no, and I've talked to, you know, plenty of brewers of hazy IPAs, and they're, they're looking at the same kind of, you know, strategies, step mashing and whatnot in order to kind of, you know, lock in a certain amount of haze. And, um, you know, realistically, that does impact flavor. You know, it's a, it's a, I think like you said earlier, it's a valid style. Um, simply making fun of other people for brewing it seems to be a lot of character for, uh, for the community of brewers. But. Yeah, and it's just, it's short-sighted. Because, you know, if this thing, you know, if you're going to stand up on your high horse and you're going to talk about how you don't like those styles of beers, but 20 years from now everybody's making them and all of a sudden you decide to make one too, like you're just going to look back on yourself and be like, well, that was dumb. I don't know why we were complaining about this. Or you might have that same come to Jesus moment I had where you're just like, oh, that's that, that snap of recognition of like, why am I even complaining about this? You know, so it's like, just be, be open, be open to new ideas, be open to new concepts. Just be like, take in the universe and like, you know, just see what's out there. I would love to taste a hazy IPA from those guys. And uh, do you have anything uh, hazy uh, IPA wise on tap, Nick? Yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> Because we, we, I I'm like just about those, out of this beer. Yeah, I like drinking those beers a lot. So you know, we decided to make one, and I think we do. The cool thing about it is we're always going to do. You know, we'll try to keep up with what's contemporarily happening, but we're always going to put our spin on it. So even our hazy IPA is not like, it's not super sweet. You know, it probably finishes at like two Play-Doh, like most of our other beers. You know, so it's it's fairly dry and drinkable still. But it still has the aromatics that you're looking for in that style of beer. So we took that thing and said, here's what we like about it, here's what we don't like about it, and selectively made our recipe and brewed the beer the way we fucking want that beer to taste, you know? So, sure, it may not be exactly like everybody else's hazy IPA, but guess what? It's not everybody else's hazy IPA. It's our hazy IPA, and we made it the way we want to make it. Fuck yeah. Now we're back. I've got uh, some hazy IPA in hand. Cheers, Nick. Cheers. Tell me what you're doing here. You're right; it's not quite as sweet, uh, you know, as some other hazy IPAs, but uh, but certainly not out of the the uh, similar realm. I don't think so. I think it's really, you know, we're using the same yeast as everybody else is, but you know, we're not necessarily so London you know, like, three. Yeah, or, okay. yeah, yeah. So, you know, we get it from. A, we're lucky enough to have a local yeast supplier. I'm sure it's London three. He just calls it, you know, Northeast IPA yeast or whatever. Right. But, I'm sure it's just who's your degree. who's your local yeast brewery? Inland Island. Inland Island. They're okay. awesome. They're it's so cool to have. A big part of what we do is try to work as much as we can with local producers. Zach has been really adamant about trying to change the, you know, the producer supplier chain as much as we can, so that we can you know kind of not just work with these big guys that are just like here's our menu of shit just order what you need and figure it out 
It's more like we can go to our maltster and be like, we want this. And they will be like, fuck yeah, we will make that for you. Or we can go to our yeast supplier and be like, we want a blend of this, this, and this. And they will be like, absolutely, we will do that for you. So, you know, we can go to our farmer that we work with out on the Western Slope and say, we would like to see these fruits. And he will be like, that sounds great to me too. I will get it in the ground next year for you guys. So that's a big part of what we're trying to do is like change that relationship and try to make it a thing where we can, you know, basically source what we want the way we want it to be sourced and support a lot of these smaller businesses that are, you know, similarly sized to us just doing different stuff. So, I mean, from a brewer perspective, how do you get to that point where you can articulate, say, what you specifically want in a malt and then talk to a local maltster and and be able to uh, convey in some meaningful way what that is. I mean, you're you're thinking, you know, I would look at it almost like trying to paint a picture with pigments that you don't have yet. But I mean, you know, like, conceiving of that could be a little. Uh, I mean, it, it's you don't have a, a framework necessarily to uh, to even think about it with. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's what it means to be a forward-thinking person in general right is like if you don't have the tools to do what you want to do you figure out how to either make or get those tools in hand so of of any art form of any form most people will have some sort of desired result you know or at least kind of have an idea of where they want to steer a concept and Zach is really good at that he knows what he wants the end result to be and can back end it and say like I know I want this how do I get there if I don't have the materials or things I need to do that, how can I still accomplish that goal? You know, and a lot of what we do is try to work with the people who are giving us the ingredients for what we do and trying to tweak those things to get the results that we want. So it's really just being, you know, thoughtful and forward thinking and progressive in a way. But you're also at some point at that, you know, taking a, a risk because you think that what you're asking for is going to get you there, but it may not. I mean, haven't we been talking about how we take risks this whole time pretty much? <laughs> I mean, that's it's a true. big part of what we're doing, you know, everything. It's true. It's, true. We, it's the same way we took a risk with what the ethos of this whole brewery is. You know, it's, if you're not taking risks, you're just doing, again, just being a same-ish brewery and doing the same thing everybody else is doing. And it's really easy to make an IPA, you know, with the same base malts, the same everything. It's the same, you know, it's, it's, it's convenient to do it that way. It may not necessarily set you apart at all. And so what do you do to change what you're doing in order to set yourself apart from the rest of the pack? You know, are there some specific projects that uh, you're particularly proud of, of working with, you know, some local folks to, um, you know, to basically create your own raw ingredients so that you could create the beer that you wanted to create? I mean, I think, We've done some cool, (laughs) there's a couple of examples. I'll give you the weirdest one. Zach got a hair about making raw ales. So we, I don't know any other brewery that's doing this regularly or had done it before us. I'm sure some other people have. And by raw ale, you mean unboiled. So yeah, the process was, if we want to get as technical as I can get about it. it. Go for it. It is a specialized mash regimen specifically designed by Zach to make sure that we are, to the best of our abilities, driving off any you know, weird precursors that we don't want in the beer for off flavors or anything like that, that gets mashed, run into the kettle, not boiled, hopped, and then basically heated to sterilization temperature, but not fully boiled and then just run out and fermented in a variety of, you know, whether it be stainless or oak or what have you. Um, it's a weird beer, but the idea behind the idea or the idea behind the beer was to una- give you as unadulterated a grain flavor as you possibly can get, right? Everybody wants to talk about hops all the time. We wanted to make a beer that was all about malt and all about giving you the purest representation of malt character that we can possibly give you. So that was basically making wort that gets fermented without getting boiled. So one of the raw ales we did was with a Egyptian purple barley. It was an heirloom varietal 
that Zach was able to procure from Troubadour Maltings. And we wouldn't have been able to get it from anybody else. It was a sort of thing where, you know, Chris Schooley over there at Troubadour was like, I have come across this weird thing. Do you guys think you can use it for something? And we were like, fuck yeah, we'll figure out something to do with that. That sounds really cool, you know? And it did contribute like a purple flavor, or I'm sorry, purple flavor, (laughs) (laughs) purple color to the beer, you know? So it was this cool thing that he presented to us that like, we would have never got that from any of our bigger malt suppliers because they're looking at like, what can we sell to everybody everywhere? Whereas Chris is like, I got this weirdo fucking metal brewery over here that's doing all kinds of goofy mixed culture stuff. What can I possibly give them that's different? You know, and he's interested in, in reviving some of these grains or just providing us with something that's, that differentiates him as a supplier and helps us differentiate ourselves as a brewery as well. So that would have never happened if we didn't have a really tight knit relationship with a very small provider of one of our raw materials. Now, I think the other, uh, the other condition that also supports that is having an audience that is willing to pay a, some sort of premium for craft beer and from you because, you know, certainly working with a craft maltster like that to produce some special purple malt, um, you're going to pay per pound probably, you know, at least twice, maybe four times as much as you might pay for that same commercial malt from, uh, you know, a larger maltster that's producing it at just a massive scale. And, you know, that's, while malt is not the most expensive ingredient in beer, that still amounts to um, a rather significant increase. uh, One that that you can afford to do as long as people are willing to, you know, pay what they pay for craft beer. Um, I mean, we did not sell that beer for an exorbitant price. The thing that offsets it for us as a business is coming back to the fact that we do 70% of our revenue here at the tap room. Yeah. Right. If you're a, if you're a new Belgium an Odell, an Avery of the world, you're much more concerned with what is digestible by the, the mass, by the masses, right? We're already weird enough over here. What's making a weird beer really going to do for us? That's going to be a detriment, right? Even if we eat shit on a batch of beer, if we sell a couple of kegs of something, we've already offset all of our costs and everything after that is really gravy, right? So, yeah, I don't know. I think we can do, we can take those gambles because we're doing so much business here at our tap room. You know, that's a big part of it. But then the other piece of it is then it's also a lot of time for you and for the brewer and for Zach, you know, that uh, working directly with, you know, a craft monster like that means a lot of back and forth and a lot of communication and uh i mean it's there's a lot of mind share and opportunity cost in doing something like that huh yeah i mean what else are we gonna do (laughs) fair enough zach is one of the busiest people i know i mean he's already doing a band you know going on tour half you know for like a third of the year at this point it seems like and still somehow manages to come up with these concepts and execute them you know, and, and actually keep these relationships going with all of these suppliers as well as like managing all of his employees in the brew house. So I don't know how he does it, but he, he makes it work somehow. So your cool ship schedule uh, revolves around the tour, when tour Chemist schedule? is on tour, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, you know, I saw a uh, Denver Westward article this week which mentioned there are 16 more breweries in Denver looking to open up in 2018. Highly contest that number. Do you? Yeah, because like three of them were slated to open this year. Yeah. So they are already carryovers from the current year. Some of them are actually breweries that are just changing hands and rebranding. So yeah. that doesn't count either, right? So <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think that number is a little exaggerated, but... But we could, you know, I think it does uh, raise that question of uh, how much is too much? You know, what, at what point does craft beer, you know, and, and when I say that, you know, when we when we started this magazine back in 2013 and got put out our first issue in early 2014, uh, you know, I started looking at the statistics and the, the numbers were, you know, even at that point, everyone was screaming, oh, this is a bubble. Oh, you know, craft beer can't sustain this. There's too many breweries. Uh, but when you looked at it, I mean, there were still 10 breweries per million people. And, uh, you know, Belgium had like 12 per million people. Germany had 16 breweries per million people because, you know, a lot more breweries are local and serve a smaller, you know, kind of on-premise uh, uh, 
audience. And, you know, we were nowhere close to that. I mean, we were so far away from that in the United States that it just, you know, it just wasn't an issue. And then two years ago, I went back and revisited it, and we were at 13 breweries per million people. And just uh, earlier this week, I went back and looked at the same same numbers, same, same stats again, now that we've hit 6,000 breweries in the United States. Um, you know, it's interesting that first year we were at 2,500 breweries and thought, holy shit, what are we doing here? Yeah, no kidding. You know, now we're at 6,000, um, you know, but we are hit, we, we finally hit that number. We finally, we're now at 18 breweries per million people in the United States. And the, the question is becoming more realistic of how much is too much and at what point are are these are these businesses not adding something to the overall craft beer the community landscape, yeah you know craft beer as it grew was fantastic especially when new breweries opened up in new places and turned new kind new customers on to craft beer and in that way you know i'm not a i'm not a supply side economics fan by any stretch of the imagination uh you know you can guess at my politics but Having said that, I, I thought there was some actually something very realistic and uh, um, and true to that kind of supply side, with a lot of craft brewery openings over the last four years, where they were able to it was able to create more craft beer drinkers. Mm-hmm. That the presence of some of these breweries convinced people to become craft beer fans who might otherwise not be, and I think we're starting to to kind of hit the natural limit yeah, of that. I would agree. Yeah. I, I think that we're. Uh, I think that Denver is a really interesting canary in the coal mine for the industry as a whole, and that if you if you want to see how weird things can get, look at what's happening here. You know, um, two breweries that are GABF award winners are now splitting a tap room. You know, that's 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 odd. That's strange. It's <laughs> it's it literally, it literally is strange. Is strange. <laughs> it's just. I'm the editor. I'm supposed to make the puns. <laughs> I will. I will try to beat you to that as best I can. Uh, metalheads love puns. Oh yeah. Um, so do ska fans. Uh, <laughs> and apparently, craft beer with hops is, has just taken that in a whole other direction. Yeah, no kidding. Um, you, that's that's weird to me, right? When you see things like that happening, you're kind of like, uh oh, that's that's no bueno. When you see a brewery less than a year after it opens sell to another brewery from out of state so they can open up another brewery here not even a brewery a you know a tap room or a, a beer bar really that's a weird thing to me um there's just a lot of weird stuff going on here that i feel like you're gonna start seeing some things shake out so if i was one of the if I was one of the 16 on that list of breweries slated to open in denver right now i would either hope that i am doing something very very impressive or very very different otherwise they are going to have a very very hard time it's hard to come into a market like this with beer that doesn't impress in some significant way or another or an experience for the drinkers that doesn't impress in some other way i think the experience is the part that a lot of people don't think about it's it's really in such a mature market that we're in it's not okay just to make really good beer it's it's not enough it is not enough. You have to do something else. You have to have an angle. If you don't have an angle for your tap room or what your brewery represents or what you're doing, nobody is going to give an absolute fuck about what you're doing. It needs to be different. Otherwise, you're going to look just the same as anybody else, and they're going to go to the place that actually wows them in some way or another, whether it be by scaring the pants off them like we apparently do, <laughs> you know, air quotes, or, you know... Um, creating some sort of culture that people can latch on to. You know, Ratio is crushing it because they have a really strong culture that appeals to a lot of people, you know? They're doing a really good job with that. Um, you know, Crooked Stave has diehard fans that are all about, you know, all of the work that Chad has done to make Britannomyces-based beers and sour beers the thing that they are here in Colorado, you know? So there's, if you don't have that sort of angle, uh, and another example would be, you know, Bill and Ashley at Beerstadt. You know, they are just crushing it on Pilsner. If you don't have an angle like one of those different sorts of things, why is anybody going to really care about what you're doing? That's a, that's a fair concern. 
No, we uh, at our brewery accelerator events, uh, which are geared towards those breweries and planning those that are and up to one year, who are you know folks that are getting their breweries off the ground. Uh, the the boot camp is a lot of a lot of convincing people why they shouldn't launch a brewery. Um, <laughs> I've tried to get that for two years in a row. I tried to get a panel at CBC that was literally that, and I'm yeah. pretty sure that the BA was like looking at their big ticker board on the wall of how many breweries are opening every day and was like, yeah, no, we can't convince people not to open breweries because then we stop making money. You know, they'll, they'll still make plenty of money They're off, of their, just off of their current membership. Yeah, they'll be yeah. just fine. Uh, but, you know, our, our thought on that was that, uh, and, and, you know, Doug uh, Constantiner from Society, when we did the... Uh, love that ex- guy. Yeah, love that guy. He's, he's another metalhead. <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> um, you know, we did a, an opening panel at that accelerator in their brew house uh, in the back there. And, and, you know, Doug was very honest with, with folks. He's like, you know, you shouldn't do this. Like, let me just be very blatant and honest. You shouldn't open a brewery. That, uh, you know, it is something for him. And, and I loved that his, his test was, if you can't do anything else in the world, if there is no other thing that you would love more than to operate a brewery and you are willing to deal with all of the bullshit and headaches that comes along with that and the sleepless nights and wondering if you're going to make payroll and all the other things that are going to crush you and destroy your soul in this process. If you can deal with that, then yeah, you, you have to start a brewery. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to try to talk you out of it anyway. Yeah. And if I try to talk you out of it and I can't talk you out of it, then maybe hey, you should be a brewer. After maybe all. you should be a brewer, you know, <laughs> um, but, but I'm going to do my best to talk you out of it. And, and I think that's, you know, that's probably a place that most people need to, to come from today. Like, is there anything else you can do? You know, could you simply put that 600, 800,000, a million dollars into a bank uh, or into a stock portfolio and drive a nice return off of that? and live comfortably for the rest of your life rather than going and doing this. If you can, hey, don't start a brewery. Yeah. Um, know, that's no fun, though. <laughs> <laughs> that's the most, like, passionless way of using a million dollars, right? It probably is. Probably <laughs> it's is. It's the most sensible way you could do it. But. It's absolutely sensible, unless, unless you have a vision. You know, unless you have this, uh, and, uh, as you said, some idea for doing something that is going to change the conversation, add to the community, um, provide something that that beer drinkers haven't really seen yet or an experience that is outside of the norm um, and in some way its own unique, special, artistic, creative, insane thing. Is that a question? I don't know. (laughs) Is it? Are you just just doing your own uh, soliloquy right now? You know, I love to hear myself talk. This podcast um, is just an excuse for that. I I have always opened with that piece of advice, that same Constantiner piece of advice. You know, when people ask me for advice on on opening a brewery, I tell them not to. My new answer is if you absolutely have to, get good marketing help. You know, that'll help you stand out so much. If If you can position your brand in a really strong way and you can have very uh, convincing and um, very strong imagery and a, a very strong concept behind what you're doing, it will help immensely. If you're going to be just another outdoorsy brewery, you're just going to be that ubiquitous brewery, uh, you know, the same as a bunch of the other outdoorsy breweries. But yeah, I don't know, man. It's that's I, I've led with the don't open a brewery thing a lot. I'm getting kind of tired of telling people that a little bit, but it's still just as relevant as it was, you know, when I started telling people not to open a brewery. And I don't want to sound critical on this, but I even hate that like brand position, you know, and I, and I, and I, I think, I think the core of it is don't just position your brand. You just fucking mean something to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. You got to mean something to someone, you know, what's the reason that somebody's going to love you? What are they going to, what are they going to get from you? And what are you going to give to them that they can't get in some other way? Yeah. You know, that that value and that relationship, you know, and that meaning is that's what really that's what people want in life and, and work and business today. Sure. It's interesting you bring up value because I think that, that that brings up an interesting point, which is like when you have 70 breweries in a city, does the value get diluted? For each end of you know each extra one right when you're the first brewery that opens up in like 
you know, the middle of nowhere in Tennessee, you mean a lot to a lot of people, you know, or maybe not to a lot of people, but to, you know, you could, you could mean everything to everyone in your local community. But when you are Brewery 71, what is, what is the overall, you know, is, is there a cap? Is there a peak? Are we cannibalizing on the overall value with each additional brewery opening? You know, it's, it almost seems like there is an, there is a uh, finite resource of what that value is. And it just gets diluted as more and more breweries, you know, open up. So you just run into this problem of like, I don't know, you just, you're not, you're not bringing more to the table. There's, there's nothing left on the table. You're just, you know, there's table scraps at that point, really. We've gone in a super downer direction yeah, on this one. I know. Can we just like wipe that whole part out? Because you're just Debbie Downer right Damn now. Damn it, Nick. You're yeah. like a doom dirge metal. Uh, sl- oh, uh, God. We're just, yeah. You got real sludgy there. For yeah. Time, yeah. Um, let's, let's lighten it up a bit. Uh, you get out there around the country quite a bit. Uh, so who are the bright stars shining around the country right now? Oh, man. Who? is a bright star just remember everyone because if you don't mention them they're going to judge you no kidding right the most recent time i had an unbelievable experience at a brewery was when i was in portland maine and i had two unbelievable experiences there allagash and oxbow um and that's really cool right because you have two breweries doing conceptually similar beers with about 20 years of difference between the two of them. Allagash, I consider to be the last brewery I will go into and be fanboying out beyond belief about. I don't think I'm ever going to get that experience again. I think I've, maybe if I make my like Belgium pilgrimage, I may get that one more time. But I'm pretty convinced it's the last American brewery that I will, I will just be like, I, I've loved you guys forever. And now that I finally see in it, I love you. I love you even more, you know. So, what was what was it about the experience? It's so unbelievably pure. They are so. They are such people of intent at Allagash that it it just blows you away with the authenticity of what they're doing. Everybody who works there loves Allagash. Everybody who's every beer that they make is an Allagash beer through and through. They are just so devoted to what they're doing that you it just you can feel it in your bones that there's that authenticity and that love and passion for what they're doing and it just it just resonated with me so much it was so impressive i if i could be a brewery with that kind of pedigree 20 years from now that would be the thing that i would shoot for for sure i think it comes from the top down and that uh, rob has built the business in the way, you know, in a way that expresses his love. And Jason Perkins, their brewmaster, um, embodies every bit of that yep. and instills that kind of, you know, both discipline and creativity in all of the all of the folks there. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, but it's it's just unbelievable going to a place like that and just experiencing it was so good. Having a beer with Rob would be one of my like goals for sure. Sure, I'd love to just sit down and like. Just have that guy talk at me for an hour and just be like, oh, there's so many things I can learn from you. It's amazing. So how about Oxbow? We had a really cool experience with those guys. I love their approach to beer. It's very similarly minded to us where they're doing, you know, these beautifully delicate, nuanced beers, a lot of saisons, doing some just stunning, stunning pilsners out there. Um, And then we were lucky enough to actually, like, hang out with their crew Fava over there took us out and like taught like literally took us to an oyster house. We bought oysters like out of the tanks and everything like that. He it was like teaching us on the beach how to shuck oysters and shit. And I was just like, <laughs> what is even happening to like what is my life right now? You know, it was like we had just drank all these beautiful pilsners and saisons and everything. Then we're like on a beach in Maine eating you know oysters out of the shell it was just it was so cool man those guys treated us with the the most unbelievable amount of hospitality and just we're so stoked that we were out there and hanging out with them it was it was mind-blowing it was so cool your life sounds pretty good nick it's i'm five years in 
I am finally at the point where I don't feel like every day is a, a constant struggle. I think that has a lot to do with the people that I have working here. I can not be here and I can know that everything is going to be going perfect without me. So I attribute everything that I have right now to the wonderful people that work for me. It's, I, I can't thank them enough. Fantastic. Nick Nunn's True Brewing here in the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. Nick, if people want to learn more about True, uh, where do they go? Does anybody do anything other than Instagram these days? Instagram, huh? <laughs> uh, we're everywhere. Website, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. True, true Brewing, but the, uh, the U is not a U. Is it is it? the Roman U, so T-R-V-E. All right. If you want to look us up. Well, Nick, thanks for joining us on the podcast here for Craft Beer and Brewing. I've been your host, Jamie Bogner. Thank you all for tuning in. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe. And if you uh, love the conversation, then uh, also subscribe to our magazine uh, at uh, beerandbrewing.com slash subscribe. Uh, thanks, Nick, for joining us. Appreciate the beers. Delicious. Thanks, and, uh, Appreciate rock on. Yeah. Cheers. If you love brewing as much as we do and are inspired by the work of leading commercial brewers like Mitch Steele of New Realm, Tommy Arthur of Lost Abbey, Matt Brindleson of Firestone Walker, Jeff Stuffings and Avery Swanson of Jester King, Jason Perkins of Allagash, and more, then put one of our 2018 Brewers Retreat events on your calendar. These luxury brewing events at gorgeous resort locations around the country pair great brewers, great food, and intimate camaraderie for a truly unique and unforgettable experience. Learn more at brewersretreat.com. And if you're interested in reaching the thousands of listeners who tune into every episode of the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast, we'd love to welcome you as a sponsor. For more information, drop an email to info at beerandbrewing.com and our media sales team will craft a plan that works for you. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.